right, welcome everybody to Podcasting with Friends Movies. I'm Nick Moffat, and I'm here today with Brandon Bowlby. Hey guys, how's it going? And Sean Bowlby, Brandon's brother. Hello. How's it going, Sean? It's going good. Um, today we're going to be recording and we're going to be talking about the fall movies. So the movies that came out within the last two to three months. We're going to be going over some of our favorite ones. We're going to be talking about some featured movies like Blade Runner and Thor. But we're also going to be talking about some smaller art house movies, some Netflix originals. And at the end, we're going to run through a bunch of indies and do short reviews on some movies that we don't really have a lot to talk about, but we still want to cover. So do you guys have general impressions of the last few months? It's like the pre-Oscar season type of time. Uh, Brandon, what do you think? How was the last few months for you? I mean, there's definitely like a late August, September lull that happens um, where you're not seeing the summer blockbusters, but the like end of the year, really well-made dramas haven't started coming out yet. But man, this last month, I've been going to the theater so often, especially mixed with MoviePass and like seeing my average personal rating of movies. I've seen some amazing films these last three weeks like five or six in a row that I like I gave four and a half stars. It was really fun. Yeah, I totally know what you mean with that. Like I didn't really go and see into the theater too much throughout October because I was doing horror movie month. But then November hit and I w- it was like I was going to the movies like three times a week. I don't know. I looked at it later on. Like I just looked at it yesterday and I had gone to the theater nine times throughout November which is above average because my average is usually three to four times, like once a week. So I was, I don't know if that was movie pass or if there were just a bunch of movies I wanted to see, but November was a great month for me. Yeah. And I, I feel like that another strong part is it's just, it seemed like not more than a week would go by without something big coming out or a big movie that everyone was talking about all the way through August and October yeah, it's definitely that month where you start feeling like now you're lagging behind because there's just so much content to get into. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, this is the first time we've had you on the show. Yeah. Like, how how has 2017 been for you overall? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, I feel like all the way through there, there was very little downtime, especially throughout the summer. It was just one right after the next of, of something I was really anticipating. And it's uh, it's been a great year. How about some of your personal run-throughs you've been doing? Um, yeah, I, I do like these kind of abridged anthologies, and I had a, a strong year with that, too. I'm doing a Western movies right now. I'm, I'm just starting that out, but before that, I was doing Akira Kurosawa. I watched uh, 15 Kurosawa movies, and I'd never seen any of his movies before, and uh, yeah, I just kind of blew through them, and uh, loved just about every single one of his movies. And he very quickly became one of my favorite directors, if not my favorite. That's so cool. Yeah, what movie are you going to force me to watch when I come home next month? Uh, <laughs> Seven Samurais. Oh, right, right. Uh, I've heard about that one forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a, his most well-known. Or I, I really hope I'm around when you guys watch Seven Samurai. I've, mm-hmm. I've been wanting to watch that movie for years. I just I don't know why I haven't. The only Kurosawa movie I've seen is Rashomon, and I was blown away by it. Uh huh. Yeah. And then hopefully our Tarkovsky uh, run through is going to be coming up later, early next year. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get started going over some of our featured reviews. 
The first movie we're going to talk about is Blade Runner 2049, the sequel to the Ridley Scott classic. This film was directed by Denis Villeneuve. First, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, how was your overall experience seeing Blade Runner 2049 in the movie theater? I know I saw it at Cinerama, and it was jaw-dropping. Where did you guys see it? What was your format? Um, I saw it at at the Boeing IMAX, which I I don't go there very often at all, and it was... It was awesome. <laughs> it was almost even like the audio was almost even too loud and but in a really good way. And uh, it was just just incredible uh, experience overall. Yeah, I got to see it in IMAX as well. I was in Providence, Rhode Island, and I went to their mall IMAX theater they have at Regal there. Nice. So making a sequel for a movie that came out so long ago, I feel like it's always pretty risky. You know, we live in like a nostalgia culture right now, so it's like, uh, is this coming out just to make money, or do they actually have something to say? Um, how do you guys think Blade Runner 2049 stands against the original Blade Runner? Yeah, so I, one thing I've said about this movie uh, a few times is that it's just... It, it's a movie that it exists for no other reason to, than to be good. I don't feel like for a movie like this, nostalgia will, plays that big of a role because I don't think a whole lot of people have seen it on a you know for a big Hollywood blockbuster that cost you know 180 million dollars to make. So I really feel like they understood well that this movie just exists to be a good movie, and that's all it really has writing on it. Um, and I think that they they did a, a great job with that and let Denis Villeneuve do what he really wanted to do. And I feel like everyone was kind of on the same page with this movie. So, Brandon, like what works in Blade Runner 2049? Denis Villeneuve works in this film. Um, as far as like too many sequels happening these days, um, I definitely when I first heard of this movie, there wasn't anything really grabbing me. And I thought it was might have been a little gimmicky. I'm um, taking like this one of the most classic sci-fi films of all time and trying to put a sequel to it um, in 2017. But as soon as Dennis Villeneuve's name was attached to it, I completely hadn't let my guard down and the anticipation started building. They just found the right director and the right cinematographer, Roger Deakins, and they really could do no wrong. Yeah, no, uh, I totally hear you. I feel like Blade, Blade Runner 2049 was hands down the most gorgeous movie I've seen all year. Like every shot in it could have been a painting. Like you could have, like you could take any shot in the movie and frame it, have it as a piece of art at your house. If Roger Deakins doesn't win best cinematographer (laughs) at the Academy Awards this year, it is a crime. He's never won before. And he goddamn needs to win for this movie. He's been nominated 14 times. Yeah. I feel like he's the uh, Martin Scorsese of cinematographers right now. And he just, and I guess the the kind of difference between them was uh, when Martin Scorsese finally won his Academy Award, you know, it wasn't his best movie. A lot of people would not say that 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 was his best movie. Uh, But this, I think there's a good case to be made that this is Roger Deakins' best work. Yeah, I, I hear that. And, you know, for me, um, I don't know if this is blasphemous to say, but I kind of think that Blade Runner 2049 surpasses the original Blade Runner. I mean, I really like the original Blade Runner. I love how it's a film noir. I love how gritty the streets are and how, I mean, it's a gorgeous film on top of, you know, on top of it all as well. But um, 
I kind of feel like Blade Runner 2049, it it takes the same themes from the original, except it goes further with them. I feel like it's a little bit more gorgeous, just based on the technology and where we're at in the world. Blade Runner 2049 isn't really a noir like the other one, but it still has mystery elements, and it keeps you questioning, and it keeps you engaged. I mean... I didn't grow up with the original Blade Runner, and so I think that's kind of part of my thing where it's I didn't see the original until this year. So it's kind of unfair for me to say, but in some ways I feel like Blade Runner 2049 is, is surpasses the original. Yeah, I feel like the original is not without its faults, as incredible of a film it is. And those faults have been talked endlessly, um, you know, leading up to the sequel of where the first one lacked. And... I think this new one picked up the slack in those departments with clearly the complexity of the storyline and the characters not being so flat and really took it up a notch on those aspects. And so, yeah, like you're saying, there's an argument to be made that this is the better film. It improves on almost every aspect that the original had. Um, I'm like a big sucker for that ending uh, monologue and that those very last like two minutes of the original. And I think maybe the uh, new one lacked that like impactful moment at the end, just to make it all come together in one instance. But besides that, um, this is going to be one of the best films of the year for me, my top 10 list. Yeah. Um, my only thing I would say about that is that I think this movie does a great job of, uh, doing that visually. If you compare each individual aspect of the movie one to one, I think this movie, uh, is, an equal to the original and then in some categories i would say it is better so like uh in in terms of character i think um ryan gosling's character in a lot of ways is is more his story is more like the more interesting character of the first one which was roy batty's character who wasn't the focus of the movie he kind of came in and out of the storyline but i thought he was a a far more interesting character who had a, a bigger impact on the plot and where the story was going than, than Deckard, uh, had on the, on the plot. So I think making this one about a replicant who is dealing with the kind of philosophies of, of what it is to be human and, and what emotions are and everything. I think that was a great choice. And I think kind of is more interesting to me than, uh, what the first one was. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the next movie. Uh, the next movie we're going to talk about is called The Florida Project. This is a smaller indie movie that didn't get released into the bigger theaters, but it was definitely one of the best movies of the year. Directed by Sean Baker, the follow-up of his last movie, Tangerine. The Florida Project was a movie about a family that was living at a motel in Florida outside of Disney World. Apparently, in real life, there are these hotels that are kind of disguised as resorts for Disney World, but then really they're they're kind of run-down places where low-income people are living. Um, basically, this movie is, like, shot like it's a fly on the wall. It's extremely realistic. It's, like, showing you a part of life, a place in life of these people that exist, but you don't normally get their perspective. The, the main character is this little girl. Her mom is negligent. You know, she loves her daughter, but she's a, she's basically a kid herself. It's, it's heartbreaking and sad, but real, real as fuck. 
Which is surprising. Like, I mean, I kind of knew better because I saw Sean Baker's first film, Tangerine, which is also very much in the same light as uh, the Florida Project. But from the trailer, when you watch it, um, it is kind of like, it shows it as a lighthearted little indie, like cute film. And I took like some friends who were in town to it, kind of hoping it would be in that direction. And we were completely surprised with just like the level of realism and where this movie like takes its characters and kind of how how dark and sad it does get. I remember there's one thing like listening to the audience in the theater's reaction to this film from the beginning, like people laughing and chuckling at the antics you're kind of seeing and just kind of the long spiral into just everyone being completely shut up while the content on the screen really hasn't changed. It's just like the way it compounds on top of itself and builds. Um, By the end, you kind of see the exact same interactions, but in a completely different way. And that was really powerful. Yeah. I mean, for me, coming from social work, it, it was not enjoyable watching this movie. It was kind of like seeing another side of some of the families I've worked with. And I, I, I kind of felt like I was doing work when I was watching the movie. Like I kept thinking like, Oh my gosh, they need to be, they need to be teaching this girl how to behave. Like, why isn't anyone taking care of her? It was just, it was very frustrating watching it, but that does not change the fact that it was a amazing movie. It was so honest and really, I mean, it was one of those movies where there weren't any of those quote-unquote movie moments there weren't any of those like quippy dialogue lines there weren't any of those like you know soundtrack moments where like you know something happens there weren't any like profound character arcs or anything like that it was it was like real life as bleak and as honest as it is okay so moving on let's talk about the next featured movie thor ragnarok the new movie in the MCU, directed this time by Taika Waititi. Um, Sean, I know you saw Thor Ragnarok twice in the movie theater. How do you think it stands to the rest of the MCU? What I say about the movie is it was so goddamn funny that I did not care at all, that it was kind of bland and and a, a pretty standard, typical, uh, kind of boring Marvel movie. But it was very unique in in how funny it was and and how Taika Waititi uh, really drew the comedy out of the characters and the actors um, to make it a very unique Marvel movie. And I I would say it's it's definitely the funniest Marvel movie, uh, even funnier than Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, But it does have a lot of problems plot wise structure wise and uh character wise that that um frankly i didn't i didn't even really think about or care about while i was watching the movie but after the movie thinking about it really stand out to me so i would not put it up there with with some of the best marvel movies but it is definitely the funnest and uh the funniest and it is uh one of the most enjoyable to watch yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. Um, I think maybe a little over 50% of this film was really, really strong. Everything that happened on the new planet and all the characters oh, yeah. you're introduced to and the way they kind of like 
realize the sets and the costumes and everything that's happening um, on this new world is is really great and has all the funniest parts as well. Um, Absolutely. And then, but on the other side of that, I kind of was very underwhelmed with everything else that was going on in the storyline, including like the ending I felt was a little straightforward um, as far as like save the people kind of ending that we've seen in a lot, a lot of films. Um, Mm -hmm. I do want to say that I was uh, really happy with the Dr. Strange uh, cameo. Mm -hmm. His, his appearance in the film was actually uh, really like had a lot of charisma and um, it got, got me excited to see more of Dr. Strange for sure. I definitely, I mean, I loved this movie. I thought Taika Waititi's style totally came through. I thought it was, I'm with you, Sean. I think it was the funniest MCU movie. Like, I feel like all three of them that came out this year, Guardians Volume 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Thor Ragnarok, all three of them were extremely funny. Um, So strong. Yeah, and like Marvel's kind of taken steps to change up the formula a little bit so they're they're not all exactly the same, and there's fun things to pull out of them that really separate the characters. But... Yeah, this one kind of suffers from the same stuff that a lot of them suffer from. Like, the, the villain isn't that strong. You know, I mean, she's she's strong in context of the movie. But, like, in terms of a character, we could have gone more. Um, the emotional moments aren't necessarily earned. Like, the stuff with the Anthony Hopkins, Thor's father, you know, not, not totally earned. But, like, Jeff Goldblum was so amazing in it. Like, Jeff Goldblum stole the movie for me. Like every single thing he said was hilarious. There were there were a lot of stuff like that. Like Thor and the Hulk's relationship was fun throughout. Just seeing the Hulk in a different context. It kind of actually gave me hope that they could make another Hulk movie. Just because his character seemed to be evolving and seemed to be going in another direction. Um and I I feel like uh you know I a lot of people say that uh, Jeff Goldblum stole the stole the scenes that he was in and kind of was some one of the best parts of the movie. But I think Taika Waititi was another one that stole just about every scene he was in. Well, I forget the name of that character, but the big rock creature. He was amazing too. And and then thinking about how much comedy they were able to pull out of uh, the relationship between the brothers Loki and Thor. Um, and how how good some of that stuff was and wait the comedic rock guy was Taika Watiti definitely isn't that oh yeah. I thought it was one of the um, Fly to the Concords guys yeah I did at first too no. but yeah it was totally him oh that's really cool <laughs> yeah definitely it's it's really amazing that they're able to pull that off I actually really feel like the action took a back seat in this movie like almost almost purposefully oh, yeah. I don't know if it's because Taika Waititi doesn't really do action that much but I kind of felt like all of the action scenes were more about the characters interacting with each other than they were the action I, I wonder how much of that was just Taika Waititi not being an action director at all just kind of let other people take the reins on the action while he he uh, you know played to his strong suit with the comedy and the characters Okay, so let's move on to our next movie. Um, the next movie we're going to talk about is Lady Bird. It's, a, it's the first film that actress Greta Gurig directed. I think she wrote it as well. It's a coming-of-age story about this girl growing up in Sacramento. It's basically her senior year of high school, and she's applying for colleges. She's 
going to prom. She's meeting and hanging out with boys. She's got her best friend. She's got this intense, emotional relationship with her parents, especially her mother. Um, What did you guys think? Brandon, what were your uh, overall impressions of this movie? This movie is just like almost perfect. I guess not to sound like negative, but I don't, I don't think there was anything about this movie that like, I just absolutely dropped dead loved, but there was absolutely nothing that I disliked. Um, this movie so well executed for being a typical coming of age film and just like kind of so much better than it should be for its subject matter. Yeah. Every, everything is flawless. The ending, the ending kind of ruined me at one point. Um, it was one of the few times I've cried uh, in theaters this year. I, re- I really respect this movie. I think it's going to, uh, you know, it reminds me of like The Breakfast Club a lot and its sentimentality. Um, maybe not as classic as that, but it's it's right up there with those kind of well-executed coming-of-age films. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it's um, kind of in the same vein as, uh, I don't know, a, a coming-of-age story like... Uh, Juno and um, The Edge of Seventeen, right, uh, yeah. except for it didn't have a snarky, snappy dialogue type character, um, and it played it a lot more real and, and heartfelt than those movies did. Yeah, for um, sure. And I also think, I think uh, an interesting thing about this movie is, for me, it did almost exactly what uh, Boyhood did for me. Uh, I, I kind of came away with the same same emotions and had a very similar ending to Boyhood, but it did it in 90 minutes, and it only was one year of this person's life, and I, I give the movie a lot of credit for for playing it off like that. Yeah. What I loved most about this movie was the relationship between the daughter and her mother. I thought it was so emotionally complex. Like, there were so many levels of like if you're peeling an emotional onion it's one of those things where like there are so many layers to how they felt about each other and the movie didn't take shortcuts with it it was in your face it was real as it could be and there's a lot of variables with it like I've had conversations with multiple people about the future of their relationship and how they move on and how much baggage each of them has because of the other person. I don't know. I just, I, I thought the relationships between the characters was so honest and real. And to me, it was one of the better uh, coming of age stories I've seen probably in a few years. Like if you're into coming of age stories, I would highly recommend this movie because it's, it's one of the better ones. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out, Sean. Like, that's definitely the angle this movie takes. And it's so well written and basing, like, all the character interactions in reality and making it that much more relatable. While a lot of other films in this genre are a little more sassy and witty, um, this one doesn't go there. And it's and it's a lot better for it. It's like it's in the middle between Juno and and the Florida Project. You know, like, we talked about the Florida Project earlier as realism. And... The Florida Project didn't have any of those, like like I said, movie moments, while Juno is completely full of those silly, stupid things that she says. While Lady Bird, there are a few times in the movie where it's like, oh yeah, this is a movie. Like, these kind of things only happen in movies. But the relationships are totally real and totally honest, and I could see them happening in real life. 
Yeah. And I love how it's a movie about uh, someone who grows up to realize that uh, people who don't like Dave Matthews band aren't worth being friends with. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, the next movie we're going to talk about is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It's a new film by Mara McDonough. His other films were Seven Psychopaths and In Bruges. So basically, if you've seen either of those movies, you know that you're going to get a bleak, nihilistic comedy. Basically, it's about um, a mother whose daughter was, and before the movie starts, her daughter was raped and killed. And she sets up three, she buys three billboards or rents three billboards and asks the police department and the town why there haven't been arrests and cause a ruckus and a fury in the people in the town. Um, both of you guys have seen this movie. Uh, what are your general thoughts? Um, like I've said, this movie in the best way, when you leave the theater feels like you just watched like four movies worth of movie, the like onslaught of twists and turns and character interactions and like you get super giddy, you get super excited, and then they pull the rug out from underneath you. Like this will be up for best screenplay. This is like one of my favorite films of the year. Um, I've not seen any other films directed by um, Martin McDowell, but I cannot wait to go back and see his other two films because his style is so unique and he has a lot going for him. Sean, what about you? Um, yeah, I, I loved a, this movie, and I could probably gush about this movie for a while. But, um, I, I yeah, I mean, I just, I laughed, I cried, I was, um, you know, it satisfied on so many emotional levels. Um, and just how the movie kind of ends in a place that you uh, could not have possibly predicted uh, it, it ending in, in ends in such a way that is so emotionally fulfilling, um, but is so far from where you thought it would go. Um, <clears throat> and but unforced it, too. Yeah. Yeah. It so naturally goes to this, this, um, completely different place. And, um, I, yeah, I mean, everyone was, was so good. Sam Rockwell and, Francis McNorman and there are so many great moments that I you know I cried a couple times in this movie. Yeah, I I really like uh Martin McDonough. I think that his style um is it's kind of I don't want to say it's one of a kind, but it's one of those it's like I feel like uh dark black comedies used to be a bigger like there used to be more dark comedies that would come out like in the early two thousands and they kind of faded away a little bit and he's kind of bringing them back. Like there's, he strikes the balance perfectly of violence, emotional sadness, dark, like real life stuff, but then hilarious over the top, ridiculous things that are happening. And he, like, he makes you laugh first and then the violence happens and then he makes you laugh again. I think that's uh, really amazing. I kind of feel like maybe I didn't like this movie as much as you guys, though. Um, I had a few, like, nitpick things with it. Um, I kind of left um, the theater with a few questions, and uh, some of the motivations of some of the people were kind of questionable for me. Um, some of the choices they made um, kind of took me out of the movie a little bit. 
but um, they're all like nitpicky things. I still gave the movie four stars instead of like four and a half. So the characters are another thing that is uh, did really well. Um, you know, caring about and treating some of the characters that you would almost are almost despicable characters, um, and somehow turning them into really human um, characters who are just dealing with life and um uh yeah and, and to make you sympathize with some of these characters was a pretty amazing feat and not everything was like black and white like our main protagonist was so far from perfect and they mm-hmm. let you know that almost immediately in the story and um, oh yeah you know, yeah. the sheriff as well is probably what she set up to probably be the antagonist is maybe one of the most like pure characters in the film. Um, yeah, the characterization in this movie is really unique and different. Yeah, that that's kind of Martin McDowell's thing is to take people who are very unlikable on paper, you know, rapists, uh, racists, like bigots and people with all sorts of problems and prejudices and humanize them and make you relate to them and make you see that they there's more to them than just those black and white things that you know he lives in a very very gray his movies are very gray with their characters and he makes you come around to them um on many different levels okay so let's move on we're gonna switch out of our featured movies those are kind of our main movies that we were talking about we're gonna switch into our indie corner so these are movies that either were in some of the smaller theaters or were straight to Netflix movies. So the first movie we're going to talk about is called Good Time. It's directed by the Safari Brothers. Um, I haven't seen this one. I think, Brandon, you're the only one that's seen it. Yeah, um, I was hearing a lot of good things about this movie, um, and I was really, really impressed with it. It's kind of about uh, these, these two brothers who at the beginning get in trouble and one of the brothers goes to jail. The other one who got out clean is trying to make bail for him in like 24 hours. It's kind of one of those like almost storyless films that you're not supposed to make. You know, like a guy walks down the street and random things happen to him throughout his day. It's kind of one of those movies um, mixed in with just this guy trying to make money for his brother's bail throughout the two hours of the film. Um, But what makes this movie stand out is just how well-paced and how well-written the things that end up happening to him on his adventure overnight. One thing leads to the next and everything keeps tying in and out of each other. And like the chaos that he kind of ends up getting himself into is just fascinating to watch and so thrilling and exciting. And this movie is shot in Brooklyn, Queens, New York, and almost all at night and the cinematography and the lighting and kind of the way they make like the darkness of New York City um, is just like a really fascinating backdrop for the film. So I highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. I can't wait to watch it. I know it's available at Redbox, well, certain Redboxes and like on Vudu and stuff. So I'm going to be trying to watch that in the next couple of weeks. The next movie that we want to talk about is called The Meyerwitz Stories, New and Selected. It's the new film by Noah Baumbach, and it's on Netflix right now. It stars Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Elizabeth Marvel as uh, siblings, and then their dad is Dustin Hoffman. 
and it goes through each of their perspectives and uh, kind of shows you their relationship with their father through their perspective one story at a time. I know personally I have a lot of mixed feelings about Adam Sandler, most of them negative, but shit. In this movie, I absolutely loved him, and I thought all the relationships were totally real, and um, Noah Baumbach, he's one of those filmmakers who makes very, very tense, realistic movies, which sometimes are hard to watch, and I, I went in this movie hoping that it would be my favorite Baumbach movie, and it turned out it was completely my favorite Noah Baumbach movie. Wow. That's great. That's, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, he. what are some of his other ones? Like Francis Ha, um, Mistress America. While We're Young. The Squid and the Whale, um, Margot at the Wedding. Like, all those movies, I feel like his movies are so much about perspective. It was just so honest about their, about their relationships, and there were all these little subtle moments. It rarely becomes melodramatic for what is a family drama film. I don't know if you guys follow Nerd Rider, but he just came out with an incredible episode about this film earlier today. Um, it's called What Realistic Film Dialogue Sounds Like. And it's one of the best episodes he's put together. And it, it kind of made me like the film even more. I mean, I, I noticed how like complicated and how much people were like talking over each other in this film and the different like perspectives that were going in on this family dynamic. But kind of contrasting that to how a lot of other writers write, like Quentin Tarantino or Aaron Sorkin, who are like going for like perfect, clean, crisp dialogue at every moment. This is kind of like the opposite of that. And really like making you think about how these characters like are playing off of each other. Totally. Like the opening scene, um, Sandler's just driving around with his daughter trying to find a parking space. And he's like, like she's talking to him and he's yelling at other people in the car, yes, like exactly. other drivers. And then, and then he turns on the radio and he's listening to, he's searching for the Mets game. And there's so much happening in the dialogue, all, all jumping all at once. Um, yeah, characters constantly having multiple conversations with each other at the same time and just not listening to what the other person is saying. It is it's so well written. That's something that's that's pretty rare too in movies is is uh people not understanding or not listening to the other people. Uh usually it's, you know, the communication in movies is so direct and and it's one one person right after the other and um, yeah, that's I, I've, I haven't seen this movie, but that's what that's the impression I get from it and uh, from everything. Cool. So let's move on to the next movie. Um, the next movie we want to talk about is called The Square. Brandon, do you want do you want to talk about The Square? Give a brief rundown on it. Um, yeah. So The Square is a Swedish film. Um, I got really excited about this film because it won at Cannes Film Festival um, at the beginning of this year which pretty much signifies it's going to be like a great movie. If you go back the last like eight or nine films that have won, they're always some of the best. Um, so I was anticipating this film all year and finally it came out and yeah, I, I loved it. This is kind of actually more of a comedy than I expected. It deals with uh, modern art, postmodernism in this museum in the middle of Stockholm and it follows the guy who kind of runs and curates the gallery there in the city. And it, it just deals with 
the the people who run the place, the parties they have, and kind of like the comedic hypocrisy that a lot of them run into in their job dealing with the art world. The film makes fun of everything on kind of all sides of the spectrum and like takes jabs subtly and not subtly at a lot of different um, aspects of that way of life. And it's also like more impeccably made than it kind of has any right being. Like there's just beautiful, beautiful shots and incredible staging, long takes, things going on like deep in the backgrounds that you're not even focusing on that are like making you crack up or it's just, it's like a very meticulously made movie, which is not all that common for comedies. Yeah. I mean, I saw it too and I, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it had more style than a lot of movies that came out this year. Like kind of like Blade Runner, how almost every shot could have been like a framed picture. I agree. It was much funnier than I thought it was going to be. Like it was, it was a pretty hilarious movie. Yeah, my my only problem with it was that I felt like the characters um, weren't like deep enough. Like there weren't, there wasn't enough going on with the characters to justify how long the movie was. Like I kind of felt like it lost track of itself. It was over two hours long. It was like almost two and a half hours long, and it was kind of like it kind of felt like it got kind of lost at the end of what. It had it had a lot of style, and it was making a lot of points and critiques about the art world, and you know had this whole thing about you know charity and like in the movie he was trying to make a point about homelessness, and then the movie was kind of saying that it's it's easier to say that you're doing something about homelessness than actual do actually doing something, but you know that's like something the movie was saying, but I kind of felt like it lost track of itself by the time we got the two and a half hour mark with the characters and what they were doing. Right. There, there are very long scenes in this movie that just play out and you kind of, you know, there's a few that you just like really want it to end cause it's getting so uncomfortable, but it ends up being like eight minutes longer than it should be. Um, that's kind of, yeah, it is part of the style of this movie. Yeah. I understand anyone who felt that it, two and a half hours is a lot for this kind of comedy. So let's move on to the next movie, Brawl in Cell Block 99, directed by S. Craig Zoller, same guy who did Bone Tomahawk, if anyone has seen that one. So going into this movie, I expected a slow, maybe quiet, violent film. Uh, it stars Vince Vaughn. Uh, basically, he gets into some trouble. He gets goes to prison, and then it's a descent into hell after that. Uh, all three of us have seen these, seen this movie. Um, I know I really liked it. I know, Brandon, you really liked it. And maybe Sean didn't like it as much. First of all, Vince Vaughn. Um, I'm wondering how come no one has ever cast Vince Vaughn in a role like this before. He can beat up or destroy anybody. But he also is a kind person that he cares about his wife and he wants to work on their relationship. Has very strong morals. Yeah. And so then the movie just takes you into a descent. You know, he gets in trouble. He goes to jail. And then it's a descent into hell of how far will he go to save the people that he cares about. Um, I, you know, I did have a few issues with that. I feel like it gets a little cartoony at some parts. Like there's a few moments in the movie where I was like screaming how gruesome it was. 
but then in the same scene, maybe it goes a little too gruesome where it's like goofy. You know what I mean? I just wish they had like it's like diminishing returns with the gruesomeness a little bit. Besides that, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, I think you hit it on the nose. Like it's all about Vince Vaughn's character and in this kind of typical revenge film, they place a very like unique person in the center of it with just how this guy knows everything that he is doing and what is right and what is wrong. And he does certain things just because he has to, and he would never have done them otherwise. Uh, it's like a really different take on the like protagonist we're not used to in this kind of revenge film. I I kind of liked the like border of um, fantastical that this movie plays on you know as he descends further and further he kind of goes to places that clearly like aren't based in reality but are just kind of pushing the envelope of what could exist in like a corrupt prison system and so I kind of like did enjoy that like kind of bit of fan like fantasy that was placed throughout this movie and especially with just like as you're saying like how strong Vince Vaughn is like he's stronger than a normal human being ever could be and it's like writing the line in a playful way there I think one thing I that didn't help this movie was it is a lo, like slightly lower budget film. Um, you know, it was released direct to Netflix. I don't know if we talked about that, but it also kind of had like a really annoying super blue color gradient that I don't think helped at all. But it was like nearly black and white at some points, just because they like way overdid its uh, its blue color correction. And that was, that really bugged me a lot. But yeah, I overall enjoyed this film. I gave it like four stars. So, yeah, so I didn't, I wasn't into this movie. Uh, I guess for me, it was, it didn't, there didn't really seem to be any kind of character conflict or really much conflict that played throughout the movie um, at all. Uh, I mean, it just seemed like, at every moment Vince Vaughn just knew what he had to do and he just went and he did it. He did he wasn't struggling with his morality, he wasn't struggling with his anger, he wasn't there was no struggle um with what he was doing. It's just at every moment when whenever a problem came, he just knew what he had to do and that was that was it. And on top of that, I was, I guess I was struggling with what this movie really was. I wouldn't say it's an action thriller. It's not a, a, a brutally violent action movie. It's not a crime drama. It's not a, it's not a, a, a gangster movie or, a, you know. Um, and so I was just like, throughout the whole movie, I was struggling with what is this movie? And, you know, I know it was, it was stylized um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess like there was nothing that for me to really hold on to throughout the movie that, that worked well. That's interesting. Cause I hear all those criticisms for sure. Like, I, you know, I can't mm. argue with any of those. I um, can, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it was, it's funny because I was telling you, um, you should put bone tomahawk on your, uh, western film list mm -hmm. at the very end for a modern western but now i'm not so sure oh yeah <laughs> such a downer no i mean it's cool like it's definitely not a movie for everybody what you're saying about it not being anything like what kind of movie it was like that's pretty interesting to me where like you're right like i don't know how to describe this movie 
to someone. Like I was trying to the other day and I was like, yeah, Vince Vaughn is a badass, you know, and he just <laughs> beats people up and he's a super, he's superhuman. Um, and he's has to do a lot of crazy things. Yeah. Um, but even then it, that none of that even happens till like an hour and 30 minutes into the movie. Um, I don't know, man. I feel like he breaks a lot of people's arms throughout the movie. It's hard. It really is hard for me to classify it as anything. But then, but then also, like, does a movie need to be classified as well? Yeah, I don't know. Not necessarily, but. Well, let's move on. Uh, the next movie that we are going to talk about is called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It is directed by Yorgos Latimos, the same guy who did The Lobster, um, which came out a couple years ago. I, I'm kind of struggling with how much of the plot we should talk about with this movie. Um, because it's surprising when they kind of reveal what the plot is. Brandon, what do you think? Um, should we talk about what the plot is? I knew nothing about the plot. I actually had not even seen a trailer when I went into this movie. And the way the two main characters like slowly develop is so shocking and surprising when it's not spoiled for you. So I think going in in the dark for this movie is by far the best way to do it because it is a slow, amazing buildup. Um, this movie is one of my favorite movies of the year. It is like just oozing with style in every single shot and every single scene. The, yeah. It really reminded me of like the neon demon from last year of just like one of these directors that just has this like incredible visual sense. The movie is like intense and really shocking at moments. It's kind of like plays in a world of fantasy as well. Um, it's one of the darkest comedies I've ever seen because while everything that's going on around you is horrifying, um, there was a lot of people in, in the theater that were appropriately finding moments to like have a good laugh and chuckle at kind of the absurd situations they were getting into. I feel like I need to like just, I feel like it's very connected with its his other film, The Lobster, in that both movies are like intensely existential. You know, um, they make you question who you are and what you believe in sometimes, like at moments. Like for me, like after The Lobster, The Lobster was one of my favorite movies the year that it came out. And it was so powerful to me because after I watched it, I would like, I was. I was spent into a spin for like weeks afterward. Like I just kept thinking about the movie. I kept questioning my decisions in life and all these different things. And it's so stylized and hilarious, but dry. And that's exactly how this movie is. It's, it's so like to the point, the characters talk in a very specific way. Like immediately, you know, it's the same director as the lobster. Um, just for me personally, this movie didn't hit as as hard as The Lobster did. I, I had a hard time with certain aspects of it, but I think that it could hit people the same way that The Lobster hit me. Does that make sense? Like, just because it didn't hit me as hard doesn't mean that it won't hit you as hard. Right. You, you, see, the, you see the things are there, and it just depends on how, how well they rub off on you. Is that because he's he's such a unique director and writer that like experiencing that for the first time is so powerful or or like why didn't it why didn't it f- affect you as much as 
Lobster did. Well, so both Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer kind of exist in a fantasy world. And I had an easier time buying into the fantasy world of The Lobster than I did The Killing of a Sacred Deer for, for reasons. But I don't really want to talk about the reasons too much. Um, yeah, no, no, that makes sense. The, in, in Killing of a Sacred Deer, like nobody, not a single character speaks how anyone in reality speaks. Like you said before, Nick, like this movie is dry beyond belief. And I think people watching this movie can be like the normal person stumbling into this movie. Like it's, it's laughable the way these characters speak and interact with each other. Um, to me, it was fascinating and it worked within the world that this movie created. But for a lot of people, it could be probably a big turnoff. There's, there's a performance in this movie um, that is so unbelievably good. I don't know if it had an impact on you, Nick, the same way. Like the, the boy that the father's kind of looking after in this film, like that kid needs an Oscar. I could not believe it. Gosh, that kid, that kid was, that kid was so, oh my gosh, that kid like on, on he was unsettling on so many levels. I guess um, his name is Barry Keoghan, and he was actually in Dunkirk as well um, earlier this year. But he is disturbing on all levels, and he takes that performance to the next level. And I hope he gets some recognition for it. I, th- I think he kind of makes the movie. Just the way he sells the plot is unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on to uh, our next movie, Mudbound, directed by D. Reese. It's on Netflix right now. It's a straight-to-Netflix movie. In fact, I think it's Netflix's chance to get nominated for Oscars. It's kind of their their horse in the race this year, I kind of feel like. Um, Sean, do you want to describe uh, Mudbound? Uh, yeah, it's um, a movie based on a novel of the same name, and it, it kind of unfolds as two families, a white family and a black family living in, I believe, Mississippi. Uh, each family has a family member who goes off to fight in World War II, and um, the movie really is juggling a lot of things, not only racism in Mississippi at the time, but... Um, dealing with war and um, coming back from the war and people around you not understanding what you're going through and with PTSD. And um, yeah, uh, I really like the movie um, in many, many ways. It's beautifully shot. It's a beautiful story with very, very complex characters and with a lot going on thematically and uh, emotionally. Yeah, I loved this movie too. And being a Netflix original, kind of low budget, I think it's like only $10 million budget. Um, hopefully the, this is their shot at like best picture. Um, and hopefully the Academy doesn't shut them out like they did with um, Beasts of No Nation in 2015, which was also one of my favorite movies of the year. Mm. Like if, you know, if they'll forgive them for being a streaming site and not releasing it in uh, wide release simultaneously, um, they they could have a shot at it for this film. But yeah, I, I loved it. And like the movie plays out and it like it is such a novel. It, it's, it's like juggling so many different storylines um, and so many different issues that are happening simultaneously. It's kind of, it like feels like an epic, an epic drama. 
uh, and the period piece and the time that it takes place in. And you just like learn a lot. And the place that this movie goes to by the end is so unexpected and so uh, so unique and hard to watch. It's, ext- it's extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. And it had a big impact on me for sure. Yeah. It's also interesting. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that deals with racism that exists in kind of this time period. It seems like just about everything is either pre-Civil War slavery era or uh, civil rights era or a, a more modern kind of um, movie. And that was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, movies like this usually take place in, if it's in the South, in the 60s or beyond. Or you rarely get like a view into life in um, the earlier parts of the 19th century in in the South, in America. Great. So we're going to move on to our final section, the short reviews section. We're going to just run through some movies that we wanted to bring up because they were either really good or we don't really have that much to say about them, but they were still important. So, uh, Brand, do you want to go first? Yeah, so uh, Beach Rats, it is about uh, a boy who lives in Brooklyn, uh, Coney Island, Brooklyn, and uh, he, he's kind of brought up in a poor family out in the Brooklyn suburbs, and through online um, video chat, he kind of starts discovering that he's gay and that he can get things from other men, and it's kind of like a fascinating slice of life of these characters and i really enjoyed the movie sweet um i wanted to recommend jim and andy the great beyond it's a documentary on netflix right now about the making of the movie the man on the moon starring jim carrey where he played andy kaufman basically jim carrey while filming the movie he went full in and was andy kaufman behind the scenes And, of course, that meant that he was Tony Clifton at some points, too. So the documentary is all this footage that they filmed where he is being ridiculous off screen and yelling at people and being hard to work with and just being fully in character. And um, really, it shows the whole process of it. It shows the impact of him doing that on other people. And, you know, one of the interesting parts of it is that, you know, Jim Carrey went full in and he reveals that he wanted to have that footage be part of the movie. But the studio, Universal, I think, said, no, we're burying this footage. We don't want this footage to come out, and people think that you're a dick because he was totally being ridiculous backstage. I personally, I love the movie The Man on the Moon. I think it's one of Jim Carrey's best movies, and seeing him go full Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton and seeing director Miles Foreman like interact with those people and see Jerry, the King Lawler's uh, like his reaction to all of it too. Like it's just fascinating. So I recommend it to anyone that's a fan of Jim Carrey or especially the man on the moon or Andy Kaufman. Is that on Netflix? Yep. Cool. I can't wait to watch that. Um, so the next film, one that I really liked this year was called BPM uh, beats per minute. Um, this one second place at Cannes Film Festival this year. Um, so it had a lot of buzz coming out of it. It's a French drama film about the ACT UP organization uh, fighting like AIDS awareness uh, back in the mid 80s. It just uh, it explores one guy who's joining the group kind of um, in the middle 
of their presence there in Paris and learning about that lifestyle, what they do, their protests, um, and kind of falls in love with somebody who has HIV. And um, it's a really great film. Great. Um, I wanted to bring up Suburbicon because we talked about it on our fall preview episode. It's directed by George Clooney and written by the Coen Brothers. It turns out this movie was not good. There's a reason why the Coen Brothers didn't direct it themselves. It kind of felt like an unfinished script. It was uh, jarring, and uh, it felt like it was weird for the sake of being weird. You know, it had this whole thing about crime and racism in the suburbs and dual standards. But it really just fell flat on most areas. Oscar Isaac's in it, and he's the best part of it. But he just shows up at, towards the end. Um, Matt Damon is the main character, and he, he doesn't really do a lot. Like, the movie just, like I said, just kind of feels weird for the sake of being weird. And do not rec- I do not recommend Suburbicon. So the next film is called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Uh, it was actually kind of funny because I knew very little about this film going in. I actually thought it was a documentary up until when the movie started. Um, oh. But... <laughs> But I actually ended up liking it more than I thought. Um, you know, I just went to see it for free, so it was pretty low stakes. But uh, the story it tells is actually pretty fascinating. Um, it reminded me a lot of the film Kinsey uh, with Liam Neeson back in the early 2000s. Um, kind of explores uh, a lot of psychology um, with its lead character. But this film is about um, the creator of Wonder Woman, and he actually has a lot more interesting things about his life than you'd expect. Um, He was a huge feminist back in the early part of the century, and he was in a polyamorous relationship, a very open one. Um, He also invented the lie detector machine, uh, the polygraph, and yeah, it just explores this man's life that is more unexpected than you'd think, and it actually was a really good movie. Is there also a documentary about this guy? That just came out. I thought so. This year, but <laughs> or is that? Am I just like totally? Confused yeah, I think we're on the same well. page. We were both confused. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is it. I'm pretty sure there's just a biopic. I mean, I totally could be wrong, but I've I haven't heard the documentary. I've heard of this. I can't wait to see this. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, this is like a just like a perfect like Netflix movie. Um, and even the end actually, this has like a really powerful moment that that was very well played out and got to me. Recommend it. Hmm. Okay, um, the next movie that we felt like we needed to mention, at least, is Justice League. I really don't want to talk about this for too long. Um, Yeah, that noise is correct. Uh, To be honest, uh, what I got most about this movie was about how uninteresting it was. It felt like a TV pilot. The characters come together, they fight some bad guys, and the movie ends. I didn't really have much to take away from it. And in fact, I don't know if this is blasphemous to say, but I personally preferred Batman vs. Superman. <laughs> For its ambition. Yeah, Batman vs. Superman was actually trying something. It had it was it, it made some decisions. You know, whether or not those were good decisions, they were like they were decisions and it was going for something. Justice League felt like a studio playing safe. It felt like there were two different directors making a movie with no real thought behind it. And um, don't really have too much to say about it. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Aside from just uh, wanting Brandon and wanting to hear Brandon and Derek 
try and defend their favorite director. <laughs> it is getting harder and harder with each film. I'm I'm I heard that Zack Snyder's next movie is going to be a more personal project, and I'm curious I'm curious what he's going to be like outside of like the you know the comic book world. What he, what he'll go back to? Well, so. Last time he did a passion project, he made um, Punch Perfect. Uh, Super punch, <laughs> sucker punch. Sorry, sucker punch. Okay. So, <laughs> well, um, I want to I want to bring up the movie The Hero. It's directed by Brett Haley. It stars uh, Sam Elliott as an aging an aging actor. I mean, we all know Sam Elliott from like The Big Lebowski and a few other westerns. And it's basically, he's he's an old guy, an actor trying to get work, but it's a really heartfelt story, an easy watch, and. Um, just, just an honest performance, and Sam Elliott just totally kills it. And I feel like he's one of those actors that, you know, uh, we've all seen him and stuff, but he's rarely showcased. So um, I just wanted to bring up The Hero as a movie that showcases Sam Elliott. Man, I haven't even heard of that movie. Um, that's great. Oh, I can't wait to watch it. So um, I think that's that's it for our show today. We'll be back uh, in a few weeks uh, reviewing these movies that we talked about, and we'll have another episode talking about the Oscars and some of the other awards, and then we'll be doing our uh, best of, our year-end lists, our top ten. So um, do you guys have any final thoughts that you wanted to, wanted to bring up? Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, Sean, thanks for coming. It was fun. Yeah. That was, was actually really great. So, um, Brandon, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Letterboxd at Beb, that's B-E-B. Um, I'm on Twitter at Beb727 and Instagram, Brandon underscore Boldy. Sean, what about you? Are you, do you do social media? Um, no, I don't really do it. Uh, I, I am a Bulbinator on, uh, Letterboxd. Uh, go ahead and follow me. <laughs> cool. And I'm, uh, Nick Moffat. You can follow me on Twitter at Moffman23 and, you can find me on Letterboxd at Nick Moffat. So, you know, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, hope you uh, see some movies and enjoy them. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.